0: So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner.
1: Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode... We ask what really produces success by looking at what separates truly successful people from the rest. We examine many common and conflicting success maxims and look at what the data actually says about what really works. We dig deep into the vital importance of knowing yourself and your own strengths. We look at the power of aligning your work with your environment and discuss the dangers of constantly overcommitting your time with Eric Barker. The Science of Success continues to grow with now more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 or go to successpodcast.com and join our email list. That's successpodcast.com and join our email list. In our previous episode, we discussed why people struggle to reach outside of their comfort zones and why it's so critically important that you do. We explored the five core psychological roadblocks stopping people from stepping outside of their comfort zones. We went deep on how you can become tougher, more resilient, and embrace discomfort, and how you can master the art of small talk, what you need to cultivate the skill of global dexterity, and much more with Dr. Andy Malinsky. If you want to finally make progress on something that's been holding you back, listen to that episode. Also, don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in this show, links, transcripts, and much more, and believe me, there's a ton of show notes for this episode, be sure to check out our show notes at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Lastly, you know how much I talk about the concept of mental models and how vital it is to build a toolkit of mental models in order to be successful and achieve your goals. That's why this week I am super excited to tell you about one of our sponsors, brilliant.org. Brilliant is a math and science enrichment learning tool that makes mastering the fundamentals of math and science easy and fun. They're offering a special promotion for science of success listeners, and you can get it at brilliant.org scienceofsuccess science of success. Mastering the fundamentals of math and science is such an important component of building a toolkit of mental models, and Brilliant is a great way to get started on that path. Another sponsor for this episode is the Success Live Summit. Which, as we as we hinted at, is not actually the science of success, but Success Magazine puts on an awesome live summit, and they've been kind enough to sponsor this episode, uh, as well as hook us up with some sweet guest speakers, which will be coming on the show in the next couple of weeks. But this event's actually pretty awesome, and I'm, I'm kind of bummed out that I'm not going to get to go to it. I have a, an immovable schedule conflict, but my producer, Austin, who's here in the studio with me, will be able to attend it, and he's going to be there.
0: Yeah, we're super excited. And if anybody's listening to this right now and wants to meet up, um, shoot me an email at podcast.com we'd love to chat shake hands take pictures be awesome you know i think it's really important for people that are that are striving to become more successful to become more fulfilled looking into the science of success to be around other people with those same goals so this time around the event is two days it's in september 8th and 9th in long beach california there's ticket packages available and they've got some amazing speakers matt
1: They really do. I mean, there's there's people like some of my favorite authors, Keith Ferrazzi, author of Never Eat Alone, which is literally sitting on my desk right here. I constantly keep in front of me because it's probably the greatest book ever written about networking. Uh, They've got Peter Diamandis, uh, incredible thinker and leader. People like Brendan Bouchard, Mel Robbins, a really phenomenal lineup.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. And they're speaking on a ton of things, you know, from success, how to become a better leader, find balance in your life. You know, if you're a CEO of a company, you really got to find time to recharge. Time to hit the gas. So just finding balance, mental strategies to making yourself bigger and better and your business bigger and better. Uh, really hitting on all centers here. It's gonna be a great, great event.
1: So you can uh, learn more and get tickets at successliveevent.com. That's successliveevent.com. Definitely check it out. If you're in Long Beach, I would highly recommend checking it out. Or if you're looking for a really cool event, September 8th and 9th, Long Beach, California, successliveevent.com. You can find all the information you
0: need. Success Live, learn develop, achieve. Go to successliveevent.com today to get your ticket.
1: Now for the episode. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Eric Barker. Eric is the creator of the blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, with over 290,000 subscribers. His work is syndicated by Time Magazine, Business Insider, and he's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and much more. Recently, his new book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success Is Mostly Wrong, was named a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Eric, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you on. As I was telling you, kind of before the before we got started, I've been a long time uh, reader of your blog and a big fan. I, I got to ask you at the beginning, you know, I how do you pronounce the name of it, and and what's the story behind the the actual kind of I, I'm going to botch it terribly, like Bacaducio or Caseo or I don't know how to say <laughs> it, but tell me the story behind what that is and why you initially named the blog that.
2: I I mean I started the blog on a lark. I didn't even I didn't even really know what I was doing with it at, at first, but basically. I took Japanese as my language in undergrad, and I found out the first day of class that my last name means moron in Japanese. And so uh, I've, been to, I've been to Tokyo three times. Uh, I've never had a Japanese person forget my name. And so uh, basically uh, in the Japanese language, you, you usually use last names. And so Watashi wa baka desu means I am Barker. Watashi wa baka desu also means I'm an idiot. They're the same exact sentence so basically from our url that is that is either me emphatically saying my name or me emphatically saying i'm a moron however anybody chooses to interpret it perhaps not the best marketing choice on my part for a url but definitely has a has a fun backstory
1: that's that's awesome and i i didn't know that story so that's really funny so tell me a little bit about how did you initially kind of get involved in this path and and what drew you to really wanting to understand the, the science behind what makes people successful. Obviously, that's the name of this podcast. And so I think there's a ton of synergies between what you write about and, and what we love to dig into on the show.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been doing the blog now for about eight years. And basically, I started out like just, you know, combing through the RSS feeds of academic journals and uh, kind of broadened it out and was just looking for initially interesting stuff and then eventually stuff that we could use to kind of improve our lives. Because, you know, there's a great William Gibson quote I love where he said that, The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think that's true. A lot of questions we ask ourselves about success, about life, you know, we think they're mysteries. And the truth is, a lot of these things have been solved by, you know, scientific studies. But, you know, (laughs) most of those are not terribly fun or pleasant to read. So I started doing that for a number of years. And then, you know, I was lucky blog kind of took off. And uh, people encouraging me to, to write a book and, you know, I've had a very unconventional career uh, myself. I was a screenwriter in Hollywood, I worked in the video game industry, then I was you know, a blogger and and I just saw that a lot of the, you know, ideas we have about success, these pithy little maxims we hear like, nice guys finish last and it's not what you know to, you know. I saw that in a lot of situations, these just didn't apply to, to my career. I didn't think they necessarily applied to other people's or, or at least they were incomplete. And, you know, given that my blog was so focused on personal development and, you know, and success in many areas of life, you know, from everything from happiness to productivity to relationships and negotiation, I kind of wanted to tackle those head on and give them the Mythbusters treatment and, and basically kind of look and see, like, where are they true? Where are they not true? And try and give both sides of the, the story almost like a like a like a court case and uh, and hopefully make it fun and tell some engaging stories that people can can relate to while trying to break down these myths. So uh, that was kind of the path I was on.
1: I think that's a great approach, and I love the structure of the book, which is which is as you said to kind of take all of these maxims that we hear and people kind of casually toss out and say, "Well, well hold on a second, is that even true?" And and in many cases, these maxims are directly contradictory. And so, what does the data actually say? What does the research say about these strategies? It's a genius approach to to kind of cracking that walnut.
2: It was it was really interesting for me because. You know, in in some, I mean, maybe in a prior era, these, these things were more true, but now, you know, life's so complicated. We have so many options, so many possibilities that, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that one pithy sentence like nice guys finish last is, is really going to sum up, is going to just include the sum total of anything, you know, there's. There's definitely some insight in a lot of these, but i wanted to I wanted to really look at what the experts and the academics you know had to say and I mean it was educational for me as well i mean my my intention here was you know to to write the book I wish I had you know uh, fifteen years ago and and for me to and and, and to, to kind of have fun with it because you know uh with everything I write on the blog i'm you know my attitude with my attitude with everything is just to try and you know it, it's like it better inform me or it better entertain me and preferably it better do both.
1: So you open the book with, with a question of what separates the truly successful from everybody else? What did you see when you actually looked in and at the research and the data and figured out what are those key things? What are the differentiators that separate someone who's really successful from someone who, you know, doesn't achieve that?
2: I mean, what I what I found was really interesting. Some some insights that came from the mo- the, the ten thousand foot overview uh, were some insights that came from Gotham Akunda uh, and Boris Groysberg, uh, two professors at Harvard Business School. You know the 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 kind of the basic formula being first to know thyself. You know it's really understanding your signature strengths, and that's a it's a funky uh, academic term for you know knowing what your what your unique skills are, what you can really bring to the table that that makes you stand out. You know, knowing your interests, knowing your passions, knowing your signature strengths. And then aligning that with an environment that rewards those, that incentivizes those. Because you can be really good you know, at something, but if you're not at a place that respects and values that, you're you're probably not going to be very successful. And on the flip side, you might work for a great company or a you know fantastic organization. But if you're if you don't really bring something to the table that's unique and stand, stands out, again, you're probably not going to do so well there either. But you know, once we look at those signature strengths and we find a place that rewards them, believes in those, you can you can really do something. And, and what's interesting there, and I discussed this in both the introduction and the first chapter, is uh, what what Harvard professor uh, Gotham lakumda calls intensifiers. And those are basically uh, qualities that in general are negatives, but in the right environment can actually be be positives. They can actually be, be you know, incredible competitive advantages. You know, an example, uh, example I use in the book is uh, when I talk about the story of uh, Yuri Robich, who was the, the dominant participant in a race across America, which is this, this bicycle race uh, that literally goes from Atlantic City to San Diego. They cross the entire United States. And unlike the Tour de France, which has uh, breaks, the, the race across America does not stop. The minute the clock starts, you know, it, it does not stop, meaning if you stop to go to the bathroom, if you stop to sleep, if you stop to anything, your competitors can pass you. And so people usually complete the race in nine to 12 days. Two people have died trying to do this. It is just a relentless monster of, a, of an event. Uh, Outside Magazine just declared it the most grueling ultra endurance event there is. And Yuri Robich was the most dominant athlete in this sport. And the reason that he was so dominant is he would literally lose his mind. He would actually go crazy. He would hallucinate. Uh, he would become paranoid. He'd just start crying. He would hop off his bike and get in fist fights with mailboxes. He would lose his mind, but that disassociation allowed him to cope with just the unimaginable pain and, you know, and discomfort of riding a bike for nine days straight. And he was so dominant. He would actually the the difference between him in first place and the guy in second place. Was 11 hours, so literally he would pass the finish line, and you'd have to wait half a day to see number two uh, cross the finish line. Now, I think you know when I when I was a kid, you know my high school guidance counselor didn't tell me that you know losing my mind and getting in fights with mailboxes, you know, was a path to success at anything. But that's where we get into the complexities of it, where it's just not so simple as play by the rules, get good grades, eat your Wheaties, and everything's going to work out for you. We need to look at those times where when are negatives positives, you know, and that's why, like I said, when I talk about knowing yourself and finding the right environment, that doesn't necessarily mean the typically prescribed things like get good grades and, you know, be sweet and nice. You know, it's like what is that alignment? between who you are and where you are that really produces success. And it it doesn't necessarily have to be those those things that we were all told in elementary school. Sometimes, you know, the most biggest of negatives, like losing your mind, can actually be a positive. And that's where I think we we need to broaden, you know, how we think about what results in success, because, you know, we talk about uh, qualities like stubbornness and stubbornness is a negative. But if you're an entrepreneur trying to do something really difficult, you know, stubbornness is called grit. And all of a sudden we think it's fantastic. Well, grit and stubbornness can be the same exact thing. But that quality in you when you align it with the right environment, it's a fantastic positive. And for entrepreneurs, it's probably essential. And when you put it in the wrong environment, you know, like a, a typical corporation where a group groupthink is, is, is really a big thing, you know, being stubborn and difficult can be problematic. So it's more about alignment in the big picture than it is about, you know, the, the po- positives or negatives of any particular quality uh, in the abstract.
1: I love that nuance, and, and and the the that story really highlights the example that that context is vitally important. The, the the another story that you talked about is the story of Pixar, which I thought was was really powerful.
2: Yeah, I mean, basically, it was you know it was right after Finding Nemo, and uh, Steve Jobs was concerned that they were going to lose their edge that they were. They had, they had broken new ground. They had stepped aside from the typical animation, you know, animation way of doing things uh, like Disney and the others. And they had been phenomenal. And they brought in Brad Bird to direct the next movie. And they, he, he wanted to do things differently and, and try and make sure that they stayed innovative and they stayed edgy. And he didn't do that by bringing in new people. He didn't do that by only taking the top tier talent. He did that by, by telling the heads of Pixar, Steve Jobs and Ed Catmull, he said, he said, give me all the black sheep. He said, "Give me all the people who, who who want to do things differently. Give me all the people who are probably headed out the door or going to get fired." And with those guys, Brad Bird, they managed to do things the studio had never done before. They managed to accomplish things more cheaply. They did it quicker, and in the end, they ended up making the film The Incredibles, which not only grossed I think over six hundred million dollars, uh, but also won the the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. And again, they did this by by embracing you know the the different attitudes that some of these people had rather than looking at them from through the typical corporate lens of, oh, those guys are difficult. Um, No, those guys might have a very, very different, but good way of, of, of of looking at things. Now, that doesn't mean that different is always good. Different can definitely be bad, but we need to be very careful about just labeling anything that is outside the norm or, or, or doesn't, doesn't align with, you know, with the, the current values of upper management as bad because, I think that's something we're we're seeing now, you know, more than ever. Is just uh, corporations love to talk about. Oh, we want to innovate. Oh, we want to we want we want outside the box. Yeah, but we we also don't want to change, <laughs> and and that doesn't really work. So you know, being able to to look at at what the qualities are, sometimes qualities that on the surface seem like negatives, you know, in the right environment can be positives.
1: And I think the 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 point about context too really reveals why many of these traditional success maxims are so limited because as you pointed out in a specific context that skill set or that ability might be really powerful but in many other contexts it could be dangerous it could be disastrous or it could be problematic it could be inhibiting you from achieving what you're trying to achieve
2: no absolutely and I think that's you know a lot of, a lot of one thing I was you know very cognizant of when I was writing the book was I I just didn't want it to be this, this business, like, you know, you see a lot of business books that just hold up one concept and they say, this is the end all be all answer. This quality is always good in every situation, everywhere for the rest of time. It has no downsides, no negatives, no side effects. Uh, so all we need to do is have this one thing and everything's going to be great. and They live happily ever after. And, you know, and I, and I, and life doesn't work like that, you know, plain and simple life doesn't work like that. And so for instance, when talking about the research in terms of nice guys finish last, You know, a huge distinction is short term versus long term, you know, in the short term, being a jerk can really pay off. And anybody who has seen a jerk get promoted or a jerk become CEO, you know, knows this, at least in their their heart of hearts. In the short term, you know, you see this in so many experiments, you know, by uh, that have been done in terms of uh, theoretical constructs like the prisoner's dilemma, a lot of Robert Axelrod's research. You see that in the short term, you know, being bad can be very, very good. You see things like Jeffrey Pfeffer's research at uh, Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where, you know, kissing your boss's ass—the research shows—is far more effective than actual hard work. But again, that's in the short term. Over the long term, you know, we gain a reputation. Over the long term, you know, that reputation is going to to affect you. So, it depends on that context again, where you know used car salesman doesn't expect to see you again, and that's why they have the reputation they do and why they use the methods they do and your mom you know hopefully is going to be uh, with you the rest of your life, and that's why moms have the reputation they do they're they're really looking out for you, and so it's it's critical to understand because we you know when we try to make everything one size fits all one simple answer you know it's it, that's usually not the case, but to understand. Well, geez, I've seen good guys get ahead and I've seen bad guys get ahead. You know, what, is it just random? And no, it's not random. In, in that particular case, it's usually often an issue of short-term versus long-term. So it's, I think, to understand that nuance, to understand the importance of context, really allows us to, to really start to get our brain around how success, uh, you know, really works in the real world.
1: And I think the other characteristic that you identified about what makes the successful standout and the, the vital importance of, of knowing yourself. That's something we we delve into a lot on the show. And and one of the most recurrent themes we see from across the board, even thinking, you know, looking at people like Buddhist teachers, meditation you know, meditation teachers, etc., it's so critical to to understand yourself.
0: Yeah,
2: I, I think that, you know, it's something we we pay a lot of lip service to, but I don't think it's something that a lot of people really sit down and think about and you know, we, we and, and I mean, hey, our brains are filled, filled, filled with cognitive biases and you know, and many of us can be overconfident or, or not so self-aware. But to sit down and actually think about that, you look at the you look at the research in terms of, you know, self-awareness has, has some really powerful advantages to it. And, you know, there are ways to, to go about it. Uh, management guru Peter Drucker, you know, talked about feedback analysis where taking the time to make predictions and then see how they work out, you know, in terms of, am I going to do this? Well, am I going to do that? Well, and over time you'll see patterns, you'll see trends, or, you know, if you're a if you're a little bit more brave and can and can hand, and are a little bit more thick skinned to do a of uh, informal survey of, you know, your friends of those closest to you to get an idea. Uh, and of course, with friends who, who you believe will be honest with you to get an idea of uh, what they see your strengths and weaknesses you know are, because if you ask, say, 10 friends. Yeah, there's going to be some 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 randomness, some noise in there. But my guess is, in terms of strengths and weaknesses, you're going to hear a num- you know, you're going to hear a handful of things over and over again, and those are the things that you should really kind of hone in on, because it's not only does it make us obviously more successful to do things we're good at, that's 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 pretty intuitive, but on the flip side, uh, when you look at the research that's done at University of Pennsylvania on signature strengths uh, and surveys done by Gallup. Both of them show that the more time you spend on things that you are good at, the happier people are, the more respected they feel. They're just overall, in terms of subjective well-being, increases dramatically. You know, uh, and past that, if you look at some some of the work by Cal Newport um, at Georgetown, you see that that you know pa- our passions. Many people have the typical passions. They they want to be a professional athlete. They want to be a singing success. There's not a lot of spots for, for those things. So pursuing your passions doesn't always lead to happiness. However, there's a good body of research that shows that when you pursue the things you're good at, that you become happy, that passions don't necessarily lead to success. But when you do things that you are successful at, you become passionate about them. You become happy, you know, that you're doing them. You enjoy them more. So, you know, those are definitely some tips we can use there in terms of the power of self-awareness.
1: So how do you think about balancing the, the kind of advice to focus primarily on improving your strengths versus improving your weaknesses and repairing your weaknesses?
2: Their research is pretty consistent on that one. Uh, again, uh, Peter Drucker wrote a fantastic piece for the Harvard Business Review a number of years ago that you know you're going to do much better by trying to uh, trying to improve on your strengths and trying to bring up your weaknesses. You're going to you're first of all it's it's going to be easier. Uh, you're probably more passionate about them. You're going to spend more time on it. It's going to be you know much. You're going to see bigger gains, larger marginal returns. But beyond that. Also, you know, bringing up your, your weaknesses is, is going to be very difficult. And if you look at Drucker's book, The Effective Executive, which is which is a fantastic book in general, you know, he, he says that it's much better to focus on the things you're good at and then find a way to compensate for the things you're bad at. So in other words, if, if you are extremely creative and, you know, dynamic and innovative and you're always coming up with really powerful new ideas, but you are a complete disorganized mess. It's far better for you to double down on being creative and coming up with interesting ideas and to hire an assistant to keep you organized than it is for you to sit down and study a bunch of productivity books and try and do something that is just completely kind of going against the grain. And to point to specific examples, Bob Sutton is a professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, has talked – when I interviewed him, he talked about the fact that this is exactly what many uh, successful chief executive officers have done, including Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, is they didn't say, oh, I'm going to bring up my weaknesses and try and be this incredibly well-rounded renaissance man. What they did was they said, I'm going to focus on what I'm good at, and when I round out the rest of my senior management team, I'm going to make sure that they fill in those gaps that I'm not so good at so that those things are being addressed, but I'm not the one who has to address them.
1: I think the great word there is compensate, right? And and people might get confused when they, when they think about focusing on strength versus focusing on weaknesses. If you find a way to compensate for your weaknesses, then that enables you to focus deeply on your strengths.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, any... Any system or tool that you can leverage to do that, you know, is is fine. You know, where if you start to you see people who, who, uh, you know, because of their time at a, at an organization or with a particular boss or mentor or maybe their time in the military, uh, they develop certain good habits, and you know, they they might not be the most organized person, but because they were at an institution or in the military that taught them a number of habits. Then, then they can pick those things up. So, training yourself in terms of habits can be a, can be a personal way to compensate for your weaknesses. To use, you know, certain tech, technology tools or apps that you know help you compensate. Or again, if if you're if you're an entrepreneur or if you're in an organization where you have direct reports, you know, you can be cognizant of this and hire to to attempt to to deliberately compensate for your weaknesses because you're going to see in general much greater returns. From focusing focusing on your strengths,
1: and that circles back to you know the importance of knowing yourself again. If if you really have a clear understanding of where you're strong and where you're weak, it's that much easier to say, hey, you know, I suck at being organized, or I suck at this particular piece of the business. This is what I need to find somebody whose skill set is exactly this.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. It's funny you say that because that's that's exactly what Drucker says in Effective Executive, where where he says, you know, we all know those people who they just, they, they're, they're few and far between, but we all know someone who is able to take on a project and pretty much they may not know what they're doing, but they, they know how to approach it. They go ahead and it seems like they're always a phenomenal success. And, it's, and, we're, and we're very envious of these people. But uh, Drucker says one of the reasons that's, that people can do that is because once you are really aware of your strengths and weaknesses, you're very quickly able to diagnose a situation and say, oh, this naturally aligns with my strengths, so I'm just gonna sit down and do what I usually do, or this is not so aligned with, with my strengths, but knowing what my strengths are, then I can find the right kind of solution to this. I can get help from the right people, because maybe, maybe I'm a better communicator than I am researcher. OK, well, then I'm going to get on the phone and I'm going to talk to some experts who really or maybe I'm, you know, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a bookworm, you know, but I'm not a great communicator. OK, well, then, you know, I'm going to read all the great books on this and I'm going to focus on putting putting something like this down on paper as opposed to, you know, merely talking to people. Just understanding your strengths allows you to plan the right way to go about achieving a goal because there's many different you know, strategies you can take. Once you kind of know the meta goal, what's the overall big plan, there's often many different ways to, to get there. And, and when you know your strengths, you're able to better plan. Uh, when you don't know your strengths, you're kind of rolling the dice. And if you're deluding yourself, then you actually might be in the worst situation of all, which is you, you may be actually working against your own best
0: interests. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So let's let's segue into some of the other lessons from the book. One of the ones that that we hear about all the time is is the idea of persevering, should we stay with it? Should we do quitters never win or or you know, is grit the important factor or should we cut our losses, move on quickly and find things that that are successful?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting because, you know, grit is kind of having it's uh, having a moment now. It's kind of it's time in the sun. And and there's a good reason for that. I mean, obviously, a lot of people do have trouble persisting with their goals over the long term. So that that is critical. But but I think we do a disservice by acting like, you know, grit is the answer to everything, because if that was the case, then I would I would still be in T-ball and, you know, playing with action figures because that's what I was doing with. I was seven and I decided to stick with that. No, we all change. We all grow. We all evolve you know, and, and increasingly, you know, in the modern, modern, uh, work world, you know, people are having multiple roles and completely different careers and completely different industries. So, you know, adaptation is critical. So, you know, grit is really powerful and we can see the research, you know, from Martin Seligman and others that shows, you know, optimism promotes grit, you know, that, that, Taking taking things and perceiving them uh, using a frame uh, a game type frame where where it's a it's a game of sorts can help promote grit. But on the flip side, we need to look at the advantages of quitting. We need to see, you know, if you look at the economic principle of opportunity cost. You know, we all only have 24 hours in a day, and if you just keep being gritty with things and you keep adding new skills. Well, eventually you're just not gonna have time for them all. So the truth is that, you know, strategically quitting is not the opposite of of grit. It is complementary to grit because the more things you quit, the more, the more time, energy, money, resources that you have to devote to the things that you wanna be gritty with, that you wanna you want to focus on because you know there's there's research. Uh, I cite one of the studies in the book where when you ask people, people are consistently conservative with estimating money. People don't think that they're going to be a millionaire tomorrow, so they'll they'll be conservative in terms of you know uh, committing themselves to spending lots of money. However, you know, and this 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 is the opposite of the time equals money perspective. However, we we don't look at time like that. You know, people will consistently overcommit in terms terms of, you know, how much time they have. And if something seems further away, if I ask you to to do something three months from now, well, you just seem sure and positive that in three months, you're going to have more time, you know, where it's probably much more realistic unless it's an exception, it's probably more realistic for you to look at your last week, you know, think about how busy you were. And that's probably how busy you're going to be three months from now. Yet we consistently make the error that in the future we'll have more time. And in the future, uh, sadly, the days are still going to have 24 hours and the weeks are still going to have seven days. So we really need to be cognizant, you know, of those, those timing issues and, you know, and use that to our advantage. You know, when we're, when we're planning, we're trying to figure out how to be successful.
1: So true. I literally just thinking about it now. I, I feel like I will have more time in three months, but and, and it's very hard to kind of dislodge that that bias from my mind. But but logically, I know that that's probably very unlikely. No,
2: it's critical to to think about that because time use, you know, is really big in terms of grit. You're not going to have you know, more than 24 hours in a day. And so being able to quit, being able to to think. So what it comes down to really, what I recommend in the book, is finding finding a balance where it's, you know, looking at what's producing results, you know, what's not producing results. The things that are producing results that are getting you where you want to go, that's where you want to show grit. The things that aren't producing results, and sometimes those are, those are hard to face, you want to try and let go of, but you always want to be devoting five to 10% of your time to what Peter Sims calls little bets. And that is little low cost investments to kind of see what can work out, see what might be able to come of that, you know, and be trying new things because the world's changing fast. So we need to be changing with it and to find that new opportunity, you know, that that new uh, you know, hobby relationship, whatever, you know, we always need to be trying new things. Uh, another thing that people can use that's really powerful research by Gabriel Ettingen at, uh, at NYU uh, she talks about a great little acronym called WHOOP, uh, W-O-O-P. And what that is is wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. And that is whenever we're dreaming about something we want, some goal we have in the future, to walk through those four steps. To first think about what you're wishing for. The second is to think of the, co- the concrete outcome, what you would actually like to happen specifically. And then the third, and this is critical – is to think about the obstacles, what's in the way, so that you're not merely wishing and dreaming, you're not merely daydreaming, you're thinking about the obstacles, what's in the way, and then fourth is to make a plan based on that. That really helps people be much more realistic about their goals and create a plan to get to them. What is fantastic, really interesting, is that a secondary effect that she found with this research was that it actually became a litmus test for whether to apply grit or quit. When people went through the WOOP plan, when people went through wish, outcome, obstacle plan, if they felt more energized afterwards after walking through it, if they felt like, wow, this is great, I can totally do this, then that was probably something that they should apply grit to over the long term. However, if people went through it and they felt a little down, they felt you know, de-energized, then the plan probably wasn't realistic and it's probably either a goal that they needed to discard or a goal that they needed to kind of reframe, that they needed to think about what the what the meta goal was and find a different way to go about achieving it.
1: I love the idea of little bets. And, and, and you know, it's funny. I was thinking about, I know this podcast basically came out of a little bet. You know, I, me and a, at a buddy's suggestion, really put a few episodes out on the internet and kind of slowly took hold. And as, as you said at the start of the interview, your, your blog started out the same way. And Absolutely. so, you know, these are two very concrete examples of how you should always be out there trying new little things and dedicating a little bit of time to sort of low-risk opportunities and activities that, that may take off, and they may not. And, and that's why it's, you know, that's why I always, uh, I always kind of had, a, had an issue with the idea that you should never quit because I think you should be testing lots of little things and seeing what's getting some traction and what's not and then double down your bets on the things that, that are actually working.
2: No, I, that's critical. I mean, when, when people talk about luck, What's interesting is there's research on luck. Now, I don't mean luck in terms of magic, but luck in terms of, you know, seemingly random good things, positive things happening to you. And Richard Wiseman, a professor in the UK, did some research, and and we found a few things that you can actually do to improve you know, improve luck. You know one of them was you know the idea of being open to new experiences you know trying new things because it it's it's intuitive we don't usually think about it but it's only rational intuitive you know if you lock the door to your house don't answer the phone don't go on the internet uh, how many random good things to, are going to happen to you you know not not too many versus if you're out there exposing yourself to possibilities yeah negatives can happen but plenty of positives can happen as well and so that's the kind of thing we need to be thinking about is you know trying new things exposing our ourselves to new experiences because, you know, you can't, you can't guarantee that great things are going to happen to you, but there are certainly things you can do to increase or decrease the possibility of those little serendipitous moments occurring. And one of the best ones is you know, little bets, little bets, little low cost, you know, low resource, low time investment things that could, you know, produce great results. You know, I dare to say that in the modern era, that that is sort of essential, because the world's changing, uh, we're going to have to change. And that's something that we, we need to keep doing, you know, a certain percentage of our time, uh, just to make sure that we're, we're keeping up with the natural changes in the world.
1: So tell me about one of the other topics that that you wrote about that I thought was really interesting was was how do we, as you put it, walk the tightrope between confidence and and delusion, and and how often should we really focus on believing in ourselves?
2: See, it's really interesting because you know confidence is there's no doubt that you know confidence first of all makes us feel good, second of all, you know confidence has an enormous impact on how others perceive us, and confidence was a really interesting thing to explore because. You know no I've never heard anybody say I'm, I'm trying to decrease my confidence uh, you don't see a lot of books uh, about how, how to reduce your self-esteem in five easy steps you don't and that's probably because the book wouldn't sell but you know you just don't hear anybody talking about the you know the downsides of confidence and part of that is because we have a separate word we use we will we'll talk about narcissism or hubris you know, uh, or we'll call it overconfident. But nobody kind of gives uh, less confidence the the what it's due, and we that's again because we have another word for it often, which you know we'll often label it like humility, uh, which is a positive quality because when we are less confident, we're more open to learning, we're more open to new ideas, uh, we don't alienate. Other people by being by being know-it-alls, and when you look at it, what you often find is that uh, is that confidence as a whole is a problematic paradigm, because when you look at the research, confidence usually follows uh, success, doesn't lead to success. And when and when California launched a state initiative to try and increase the self-esteem of students, because they thought it would increase grades, uh, decrease drug use. Uh, all these other things what they found is that it had almost no effect at all in fact the only effect it probably had was increasing narcissism because confidence usually follows success it doesn't you know always lead to it and what's what we can find is that often that's because confidence is Uh, Very often either delusional or contingent delusional in the sense that people are overconfident and uh, and that, you know, usually leads to failure eventually uh, because eventually reality reality gives us a, a, a kind of market correction, you know, in the in the form of a metaphorical punch in the nose. Or, uh, confidence is often contingent, you know, self-esteem is contingent where basically you, you have this vision of yourself and in order to, to realistically maintain it, you feel you need to wake up and slay a dragon every day so that you can continue to feel good about yourself. And this just keeps you on a treadmill of, of you keep having to achieving just in order to feel good about yourself. And that's, that's exhausting, but not only is that exhausting. You know, you're, you're going to have an off day. You know, one day you're not going to slay that dragon and your self-esteem crashes. And that's how we end up on this roller coaster of emotions, having to work so hard to feel good about ourselves uh, and then not feeling good about ourselves and have to double down. And what we see is when you look, you know, going back well over a thousand years is the, the Buddhist concept of self-compassion which uh, Kristen Neff at the University of Texas at Austin has done a bunch of academic research uh, showing that this isn't just a philosophical concept. It's actually a a really good kind of uh, alternative to self-confidence is self-compassion. And basically what what that is is rather than with self-confidence or self-esteem trying to build yourself up to be something greater than you're not, self-compassion is seeing the world more realistically and being far more open to forgiving yourself when you're not Superman, when you don't achieve, taking a realistic perspective and then understanding. Sometimes you're going to fail. That's human. And forgiving yourself and moving on. That keeps us out of that contingent treadmill cycle and keeps us out of delusion. And what her research has shown is that self-compassion provides all the benefits of self-confidence, Without any of the negatives, and it's a it's a very powerful tool that we can we can all use to uh, to get us out of the self confidence trap.
1: That's amazing, and, and self compassion is something that uh, we talk a ton about on the show. And again and again, it comes up as such a vital skill to cultivate. So how do you you know from what you saw? What are what are some of the best ways to cultivate self compassion?
2: You know, the first real step is we all have that voice in our head. Uh, That's, you know, so critical and we're quick to beat ourselves up, you know, beat ourselves up when we make mistakes and it's really changing, changing that voice, changing the way you talk to yourself where instead of being so negative and critical is to just have more of a grandmotherly sort of forgiving attitude where, you know, instead of, oh, I I got this thing in late and I'm so stupid. How do I do this every time as opposed to, you know what, I made a mistake. It happens. You know, I'll do my best to correct it, you know, but. This, this happens and it's, it's OK. It's not the end of the world. To take that perspective, what's interesting is you look at the research uh, in terms of, you know, something we all suffer from, kind of a plague is, uh, is procrastination. And we're also inclined to beat ourselves up for procrastination. But what the studies show is that forgiving yourself for procrastination is actually a you know much better. It leads to people getting things done, you know, and doing stuff. And we we feel like we need to punish ourselves, uh, but but that kind of keeps us in that loop where we're we're punishing ourselves and we see ourselves as procrastinators, and we're 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 still tied up in it as opposed to letting it go, letting the fear go, let the concern go. And just just getting something done, you know, so much of procrastination comes from from fear, from, you know, this kind of negative anticipation and just taking that voice, you know, in your head. And so when you hear that critical voice, just trying to soften it, just trying to to say it's like, yes, you know, hey, I make mistakes. You know, that's, that's, that's human. That's natural and forgiving yourself, you know, again, as opposed to when we take that self-confidence vision of, I've got to be Superman. I'm this awesome, super thing that can only lead to two places. Having that, you know, insane over the top, I'm, I'm 150% attitude. You know, that can only lead to you being utterly deluded and completely cut off from reality because it's it's not who you are, it's impossible. Or to you just crashing your self-esteem because you're setting unrealistic standards. And then when you see the results are not a hundred and fifty percent, then you feel terrible about yourself. And I don't think any one of us wants to a feel terrible about ourselves, or B be utterly deluded and cut off from reality. So it's much better to develop that sort of, you know, softer, quieter you know, you know, forgiving voice in our head and to just catch ourselves whenever we're too critical, whenever we're beating ourselves up. That's a really good first step to self-compassion.
1: And that makes me think about something that I think about a ton, which is the the balance between almost this Buddhist sense of non-attachment with ambition and achievement and, and how do you strike a balance between those two things? I know you don't necessarily directly address that in the book, but I'm curious what your thoughts are about, you know, how that those two things kind of balance each other and how self-compassion plays into that.
2: I mean, w- one of the things I do talk about in the sixth chapter of the book, you know, is uh, just that. Hard hard work, you know, really does pay off. You know, uh, not mes- I mean, well, hard, hard work really does pay off in terms of you know skills and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's not necessarily rewarded in an organization, but you know, when you look at the greats in terms of uh, any area of of skill based individual achievement, yeah, the more you work, if you're if you're actually you know doing deliberate practice, uh, it pays off. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that you know somebody who works you know uh, nine hours a day is going to do better than somebody who works eight hours a day. Somebody who works sixteen hours a day is going to. So it can almost become a prescription for for uh, for workaholism, and, and that can be dangerous. And uh, you know the in the subtitle to the introduction. You know, I talk about the the de- decoding what successful people do so that we can learn so that we can learn to be more like them or so that we can learn why it's good that we aren't. <laughs> because, you know, I would say, you know, the heights of success, you're going to find a lot of workaholics and you're also going to find a lot of people who are extraordinarily successful, but not necessarily happy. So you know, so we have to when we look at the idea, the Buddhist ideas of kind of you know non attachment and yeah, it's like you want to reach the heights of success, success, the extremes that may not be uh, aligned with you know a much more modest uh, forgiving. But you know, would you be would you be happy as a millionaire or do you have to be a billionaire? Uh, You know, those are the kind of questions we need to ask ourselves, and that's that's sort of the work life balance question because if if you take it that there's a you know more or less linear, you know, relationship between hard work and uh, skill development, that's going to lead you towards a workaholic attitude. And if you take the attitude that, you know, I need to be enjoying myself, I need to have downtime, I need to have some fun, then that is going to take you away from the very, very heights uh, potentially of success. So it's a decision we all need to make for ourselves. I quote Sam Harris in the book talking about you know if you want to reach the extremes of success, he says, you know is that aligned with that those kind of you know Buddhist kind of more mild you know uh attitudes not necessarily, but on the other hand, uh Harris says, but do we need to be torturing ourselves as much as we do? <laughs> do we need to be as non self compassionate as we are? And the answer to that is probably no, so we can definitely glean something uh from you know those those more moderate uh detached Buddhist attitudes. But but in the end, you know, as I talk about in the book, you need to have a personal definition of success. The standards that are presented to us uh, in the media these days, you know, are, are statistical anomalies and not replicable for most people. And we're, if we hold ourselves to those standards, it's almost a prescription for clinical depression. You know, we need to say, what's going to make me happy? What is good enough? And that, I think, is, is very well aligned with some of the, the more Buddhist ideas you're talking about.
1: How do you think about the... The idea that I totally understand and agree with the, I'm a huge fan of deliberate practice and, the, and the, the sort of direct relationship between time spent practicing and skill development. Zooming out or thinking about that from kind of a different perspective, how do you think about the, the, the application of the 80-20 principle and sort of the nonlinear relationship between results produced and time spent right because it's not necessarily if you're looking at achievement broadly or financial success, there's a lot of other factors that go into that than sort of just raw time spent
2: well i mean that's that's one of the things I think the biggest mistake uh, people make when when they haven't really read you know read the the literature you know, it's just, oh, 10,000 hours. It's like, well, no, it's not 10,000 hours. I've, I've definitely driven a car for 10,000 hours. That that doesn't prepare me to go into Formula One or NASCAR because that wasn't deliberate practice. I was not actually pushing my limits and trying to get better. I, I may have spent 10,000 hours washing my hair, you know, in the course of my life. Uh, I'm not an expert hair washer. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, realizing that, you know, 10,000 hours alone is, is proof of nothing. You know, it is the issue of, of deliberate practice. And, you you know, and again, there's a lot of other factors as well. You know, if, you know, there are issues, if, if you're, you know, if you're five foot four, you, know, you can spend 10,000 hours. I still don't think you'll be in the NBA. So there are, you know, physical limitations, natural limitations, and also there's always going to be uh, diminishing marginal returns where, you know, the, the further along you go, the harder it's going to be to improve uh, your first year or two at anything. You're going to make, if you are using deliberate practice and spending a lot of hours, you're going to get very good, you know, very fast. But, you know, after those 10 years, it's going to require enormous amounts of energy and effort and time, you know, just to to move the needle a recognizable amount. So, you know, so I think very often when we're talking about skill development, you know, it's grossly oversimplified and, and because that's what most people want to hear. But it is more nuanced than that. And we, we need to be realistic about uh, some of the limitations and some of some of what's involved. And, you know, I don't think it's surprising that many of the people who, who do reach the heights of of skill development and success in arenas, even if they have natural gifts. There is usually a fair amount of obsessiveness involved. Uh, you know, it's it's not, it's it's seen again and again and again that you know it's it's we love to use more positive spin words like passionate, but but when you look at a lot of the daily routines and habits of people who are extremely successful in sports, music, writing, uh, et cetera, even you know science and other other areas, uh, there's the you know the, the word obsessive rings a lot more true than passionate. And uh, when Jeffrey Pfeffer looked at uh, top successful executives, you know, in business, so you don't have to be talking about the arts, you know, the, he said that here's, here's, you know, a number of qualities you absolutely need to be, to be in the top of your game. The first thing he listed was energy and stamina. Because he just said you're gonna be working a lot. You're gonna be working hard and things are gonna be thrown at you And if you don't have energy and stamina, yeah, there's a lot of great qualities you can have but you're you're just gonna to need to keep going So I think we have a lot of illusions about what it takes to, to get really good But you know, it's a lot more nuanced than just oh work hard
1: So in in the conclusion of the book you asked the question what makes for a successful life? I'd love for you to share that that wisdom with the listeners.
2: I mean, you know, in, in terms of, you know, a, a successful life, it's like we, we really need to be thinking about that concept of alignment, of your signature strengths, you know, and picking the right environment, you know, and and we we need to, to really think about relationships. You know, relationships are, are really critical because that's that is part of, you know, that, that environment is the relationships you have. Uh, when you look at the results of the grand study, which, you know, followed a number of, of men, I believe it started in the nineteen thirties and followed men throughout their entire lives. College throughout, you you saw that George Valiant, who led the study for a few decades, when interviewed, he uh, you know, he, he said that you know the most important thing in, in life is you know is your relationships full stop. And that was, that was critical. And, you know, we need, and when you, you saw similar results out of the Terman study, which was another longitudinal study that followed people throughout their entire lives, uh, because it's very easy to do a, you know, sample of, you know, a hundred undergrads for a month or two, but to follow people, you know, from their teen years or their youth all the way throughout, you know, relationships are really critical. And, you know, I mean, obviously in business, you know, I, in the, in one of the chapters I talk about networking and how important that can be, but in terms of our lives, you know uh, how you feel about other people, and the interesting thing is, those people with good relationships—you know, who felt love, who gave love—actually were more career successful as well. So, you know, that idea of aligning your signature strengths with your environment is really important. But if we're not thinking about relationships and our connections with other people, you know, we we don't—I don't think any of us look forward to having deathbed regrets and what you see is when when people are on their deathbed in an informal study that you know most of the things were were not about were not about career and uh, financial success in fact quite the opposite one of the top 5 deathbed regrets was was i wish i had not worked as hard and we need to be thinking about those relationships because you know in the long term they seem to be much more important than the immediate financial or career successes
1: So for for somebody who's listened to this interview and and they want to concretely implement some of the advice and the wisdom that you've shared, what would be one piece of homework that you would give them as a starting point to do that?
2: Uh, I would say what we talked about in terms of know thyself, you know, I, I would say to to uh, do an informal survey of, of your, of your friends, the friends who aren't just going to tell you what you want to hear, who, who, you know, or uh, who, who in general, that those friends who are perhaps a little too honest, you know, uh, they, they have good use for you now. So to, to do, you know, to ask five or 10 friends, you know, to uh, tell you what they think your strengths and weaknesses are. And like I said, you're going to hear some random things, but I think you're going to hear, you're going to hear a number of things repeated. And once you start to identify what those are, you know, then you can start to think about your environment. And if you're up for a, for a career shift, you can think about an organization or a company that might respect those things. If, you know, if somebody says you're, you know, you're really organized, you're fantastic with logistics you know then then being a, a painter might not be the best uh, choice. however working for FedEx or UPS uh, might be a fantastic uh, choice if you're if you're really organized, time efficient and good at logistics and by the same token you know to, to just understand if you know wherever your strengths might lie if you can align those and in the same way if even even in the even at home you know with your partner with your family to realize you know what you're good at, what you're not good at, Uh, can really help out your relationship in terms of, you know, dividing duties and tasks, you know, around the house or with kids uh, in terms of in terms of your partner as opposed to both of you doing things which It's inefficient for for you to be for you to be handling when you have, you know, advantages elsewhere So first and foremost, I would survey try and survey those friends try and get an idea of those strengths and then start thinking about who rewards those what groups organizations uh, really really reward and value those things And then you can you can start to see, you know, you know, to pick the right pond to basically find the place where you fit in and you you are valued and respected. I think that's really critical.
1: And for listeners who want to find you, you know, read more of what you've written, where can they find you, your blog and the book online?
2: well because because my url is a little hard to, to to spell i think the best thing is to probably either google barking up the wrong tree you know that's my blog barking up the wrong tree blog or uh, google my name eric barker the best way to keep up with what i'm doing is to uh, join my my email list you'll you'll get one email a week with my latest post in terms of the research and stuff i've been looking at and my book barking up the wrong tree uh, is available on amazon and uh, and other retailers uh, so they can they can find those there
1: well, we'll make sure to include all of those in the show notes as well as all the studies that you talked about. There's tons and tons of notes for this episode that I know listeners are going to want to dig into. But Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. As I said, I've been a huge fan of your blog for, for years and years, and it's so great to have you come on and share all this knowledge with our listeners. Thanks so much, Matt. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. Your support is what drives us and keeps us creating great new content, adding value to the world, and interviewing amazing guests each week. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking me, Matt, How do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to successpodcast.com, that's successpodcast.com, and joining our email list. Don't forget, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about in this show, and believe me, this particular interview with Eric Barker has a tremendous amount of show notes, be sure to check out the show notes. You can go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.